Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We certainly need to be reminded of those promises in these times because there is such chaos. There are so many around that wish to destroy this nation. And as things just really heat up in this whole election season, it just gets crazier and crazier all of the time. So we need to keep our focus on the everlasting rock, our source of stability and hope and strength, recognizing that we've always lived in the devil's world, and the chaos that is really there is just more obvious to us right now, but it has always been there. We just weren't as aware of it as we are right now. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give each of us the opportunity to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, enjoying our ongoing relationship with God, and walk with Him as we pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us to enable us to think accurately and correctly about the world system around us. We're reminded of the, of the uh, principles laid down in Romans 12, 2, that we are to be conformed to Christ, be transformed, have our thinking transformed, and that we are not to be pushed into the mold or conformed to the world's thinking. Father, we have to not only understand the truth of your word, but we have to have the various aspects of worldliness in each generation exposed and developed so that people can understand how to think biblically and correctly about these things. So, Father, we pray that as we study today, we'll be able to understand the times around us, like the sons of Issachar at the time of Saul and David, and that you will enable us to be able to Uh, rightly think about the things around us and I hope be able to help others in our lives and our families see these truths as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight we're going to wrap up our study on how should we then vote. We started off by uh, looking at the basic foundations of our society These foundations are under assault, and one of the ways that they're under assault, and actually they have been for most of our lives. I don't see anyone in here over 100 years of age, 
and you would have to go back that far to to uh, not recognize that uh, Marxism has been had an insidious influence on America, and it's been covert and under the covers, as it were, for much of that time. So uh, tonight, I want to talk about it because it is very much present in our world and in our culture today. And so we're looking at the devil's attack, Marxism. I think there are two basic enemies of Christianity today that in some ways represent a polar opposite, but you can't have three things that are opposite, but they are both in their way uh, antithetical to everything that Christianity stands for. The first is Islam, which is both a religion and a political movement, and the other is Marxism. And so we're going to take a look at that today. And just to remind you by way of review that we have the foundations of social order. And what are they? The two things that we've looked at, and we'll examine again today, tonight as we talk about Marxism, the Judeo-Christian worldview on the one hand, and on the other hand, the six divine institutions. And so the psalmist asks the question, if the foundations are destroyed, and th- these are the foundations of every stable culture, the foundations of a Judeo-Christian worldview built on the absolutes of God's revelation and the divine institutions. And these are specifically under attack in Marxism. I will have a number of quotes tonight that all come out of the Communist Manifesto, which I've abbreviated as TCM. That is not Turner Classic Movies, okay? According to Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, who wrote the Communist Manifesto, in 18, published in 1848, Marxist ends can be attained only by the forcible, notice that word, forcible, overthrow of all, not some, all existing social conditions. It, it is not, Marxism has, when it has attempted to be applied as it has in Soviet Russia, in Cambodia, in China, in Cuba, it has never been come into uh, existence peaceably. And the result has been the loss of millions, hundreds, at least a hundred million lives. So we look at the divine institutions. And the divine institutions, I think I have a, a oh, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, we had the six divine institutions. First one is personal or individual responsibility, which is just fundamental to everything. It's either about the individual, as we'll see in our study of Marxism, or it's about the group, one or the other. And the other way in which individual responsibility is perverted is by putting responsibility on someone else for what we do. And so we expect parents to always take care of us, We expect the government to take care of us. And this is the biggest problem when we talk about politics is that the government wants to get, politicians want to get votes and say, we'll take care of you. There'll be a chicken in every pot, a car in every garage, a nice, large, wide screen, flat screen TV on your wall, and we'll take care of all your problems. But it's not the government's responsibility to take care of 98% of the problems 
that they're attempting to be involved with. It is the individual person's responsibility. And that's how we have a certain level of, of pride in ourselves, a sense of accomplishment, fulfillment. We can walk having our head held high because we have uh, taken on the world. And everybody has problems. Everybody has difficulties. And when you rear a generation where they have not taught personal responsibility from a young age, then when they get into reality as a young adult, they have no skills to handle it. It, it frightens them. They want somebody to come in and, and take care of things. So we have the first divine institution of personal responsibility followed by marriage and then the family. All of these were established before the fall, and they're positive. They're designed to promote productivity and to develop civilization. The next two come in after the fall, after the flood, rather. And after the flood, in, I mean, in the period from the fall to the flood, there's no, nothing to restrain sin and evil. And so government, judicial action, and independent nation states are designed to restrain the evil of man's heart. For as God observed before the flood that man's heart was evil continuously, it was profoundly evil. And we only have three snapshots, as I pointed out, of life between the fall and the flood, and they're all of of tremendous evil. And then the sixth we studied the last three lessons is Israel, the God called Abram through him to bless the world, to provide the solution to man's problem, to provide worldwide blessing, to provide redemption and forgiveness. And that only comes through God's plan. Now, last time when I finished, was wrapping things up, ran out of time and just didn't get to the last little bit, but that's okay. It serves as a good introduction for tonight and review. We saw that in being uh, pro-Israel, philo-Semitic, a lover of the Jewish people, uh, pro-Israel, uh, part of this involves what is known as Zionism. Zionism is the belief that the Jewish people have a right to their historic homeland and the right to defend it against all enemies, domestic and foreign. And that's the essence of our support for Israel and to do what we can to pray for Israel and as a nation to be able to do things to help them uh, in a world where they stand against many enemies. And the question is often asked, uh, uh, what is Zionism? And is is anti-Zionism anti-Semitic? And I remember when I first started exploring this, maybe some 15 to 20 years ago, there were a people I knew who were of more of a libertarian persuasion that wanted to say, I don't have to support Israel, but that doesn't make me anti-Semitic. And I ran across this letter. And this letter was actually published in a uh, national journal by a well-known figure, and I won't mention his name yet. I want you to listen to what he says without having your judgment clouded by the one who says it, okay? And it is a profound and correct answer to this question, is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitic. He wrote, Zionism is nothing less than the dream and ideal of the Jewish people returning to live in their own land. The Jewish people, the scriptures tell us, once enjoyed a flourishing commonwealth in the Holy Land. From this they were expelled by the Roman tyrant. 
the same Romans who cruelly murdered our Lord. Driven from their homeland, their nation in ashes, forced to wander the globe, the Jewish people time and again suffered the lash of whichever tyrant happened to rule over them. You declare, my friend, that you do not hate the Jews. You are merely anti-Zionist. And I say, let the truth ring forth from the high mountaintops. Let it echo through the valleys of God's green earth. When people criticize Zionism, they mean Jews. That is God's own truth. Anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jewish people, has been and remains a blot on the soul of mankind. In this we are in full agreement. So know also this, anti-Zionist is inherently anti-Semitic and ever will be so. The Negro people, my friend, know what it is to suffer the torment of tyranny under rulers, not of our choosing. Our brothers in Africa have begged, pleaded, requested, demanded the recognition and realization of our inborn right to live in peace under our own sovereignty in our own country. How easy it should be for anyone who holds dear this inalienable right of all mankind to understand and support the right of the Jewish people to live in their ancient land of Israel. All men of goodwill exult in the fulfillment of God's promise that his people should return in joy to rebuild their plundered land. This is Zionism, nothing more, nothing less. And what is anti-Zionist? It is the denial to the Jewish people of a fundamental right that we justly claim for the people of Africa and freely accord all other nations of the globe. It is discrimination against Jews, my friend, because they are Jews. In short, it is anti-Semitism. The anti-Semite rejoices at any opportunity to vent his malice. The times have made it unpopular in the West to proclaim openly a hatred of the Jews. This being the case, the anti-Semite must constantly seek new forms and forums for his poison. How he must revel in the new masquerade. He does not hate the Jews. He is just anti-Zionist. My friend, I do not accuse you of deliberate anti-Semitism. I know you feel, as I do, a deep love of truth and justice and a revulsion for racism, prejudice, and discrimination. But I know you have been misled, as others have been, into thinking you can be anti-Zionist and yet remain true to these heartfelt principles that you and I share. Let my words echo in the depths of your soul. When people criticize Zionism, they mean Jews. Make no mistake about it. That was written in August of 1967. That is two months after the Six-Day War. It was written by Martin Luther King, Jr., the letter to an anti-Zionist friend that was published in the Saturday Review, number 47, August of 1967, and was later reprinted in MLK, Jr., this, I believe, Selections from the Writings of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Now, that is a letter that needs to be frequently reread because you have leaders in the black community today who are extremely vocal 
about their anti-Semitism, of course, it's obvious that Louis Farrakhan would be because of the poison of Islamic thought that has invaded his soul. But you also have Jesse Jackson, who has come out many, many times favoring the Palestinians over against the Israelis. And you have now numerous others in the organization Black Lives Matter, and they uh, support the Palestinians. Now, why is this? Now, we need to understand how the world is thinking in these areas because uh, it's not always obvious. And, and if we're not astute, if we haven't been educated and we haven't been taught on a lot of things, which is uh, sadly not so true for most of you who are here, but if you're under the age of 40 or 45, you're probably ignorant of it. I have a friend that uh, is a pastor of a small church uh, in, um, up near Navasota, Texas, and he has a congregation of various ages, Baptist church, and he taught on some of this a few weeks ago. And he asked the congregation, he said, how many of you all know who Karl Marx was? And nobody under 45 raised their hand. He then asked him, how many of you understand what Marxism is really all about? No one under 45 raised their hand because they're not taught about it. They're not educated. It's not part of their curriculum. I remember studying this in high school and reading, uh, reading various books. We read one book by Arthur Kessler, a very liberal Jew, but he wrote this book called Darkness at Noon, and we had uh, class discussions. And as I've been studying over the last couple of weeks, reading different books on Marxism and uh, taking my time to try to stay awake while reading the Communist Manifesto, uh, it, um, some of these terms and phrases have come back to me that I learned in high school civics, which is no longer required. So how can we expect uh, our country, our nation, the people in it, to be able to think accurately about the influences that they're coming in contact with if, if the government has failed? Because most people still go to government-sponsored education, and the government no longer trains and educates our people to think critically about truth because they are as much... Uh, involved, and many of them in the government are involved with promoting evil as not. And so we have reared a generation or three that are ignorant of the history of our nation. They're ignorant of the enemies of our nation. They're ignorant of what really makes up different ways of thinking about reality. And so they can be easily duped and easily deceived. So what I wanted to do in this last lesson by way of both review, because we're going to see application of the principles we've been studying, but also to enlighten us as to what's going on around us, is to take a look at Karl Marx and Marxism. So I want to basically look at these questions and try to answer them in a brief, in a brief way. We're not going to get exhaustive, but I'm going to give you some things maybe you can, you can read if you're interested in, in going a little further into the subject. Who was Karl Marx? What do we know about Karl Marx? What were the influences on his life? Second, what was his influence, and how did he influence the world? Third, let's evaluate it in terms of worldview. What is a Marxist worldview versus a Judeo-Christian worldview? Now, I covered this in a second Samuel lesson dealing with revolution back in the end of July, but we'll look at it uh, again tonight. And then... Marxism and the divine institutions. 
And then we'll look at manifestations of Marxism in our culture today. And so that will help us, uh, I think, just to watch what's going on. Now, what are some things you can read? Well, one is a book by Paul Johnson called Intellectuals. That's the title of the book. I didn't italicize it, so that's a typo there. This is a very interesting book. I first became aware of it, I guess, two or three years ago in our Friday morning group. Bruce Baker mentioned it, and it, uh, Paul Johnson's a very well-known uh, uh, historian, written a number of books, several of which I have read in the past. And he has written this book, and each chapter is a biographical sketch as well as an analysis and critique of the thinking of key intellectuals who've influenced Western civilization over the last uh, two or three hundred years. And his third chapter is on Karl Marx, which he calls Howling Gigantic Curses. Then you can go to PragerU. You can, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app for PragerU. And you can just type in the search box Marx or Marxism, and you'll get a number of different videos that come up that deal with different aspects of Marx and Marxism. And I tell you, if you just want to get a quick look at several good topics, they have these five-minute videos that are, are very good. Uh, they're dense, okay? They, they just cram a lot of information into a very short video, but it's a good good introduction, good overview. The third book I have listed is a pamphlet almost, small small book. It's about, it is 77 pages long, called Color, Communism, and Common Sense by Manning Johnson. There are also some videos about this book and some videos about uh, that he did. There's one on YouTube that is his farewell address. Now, what makes Manning Johnson interesting, he grew up in a Christian home, but he became disillusioned with how, with what was going on in the black community, looking and focusing on the fact that they were, they, they, there was so much injustice, there was so much poverty, and he didn't see a way out. And so that, uh, because he was not well taught about Marxism, it made him susceptible to the inducements of the Communist Party in America. This was in the early 30s, the early 1930s. And so he became a very active member because of their promises to what they were going to do for the, as he puts it, for the Negro, because that was the way in which you referred to uh, black folk back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. And he woke up because he never, he says in his, in his book here, which exposes all of this, has lots of documentation, lots of data. He says that, that if, you were, if you became a communist, that you were expected to renounce any faith, any religion, any Christianity that you held, and he didn't do that. And he secretly acted as if he did, but he didn't fully renounce it. And but he became very active, and he was a 100% sold-out uh, communist in the Communist Party in America. And he rose to a the highest level of any uh, black person in the Communist Party. And then he realized that the, in his words, that the. Uh, uh, blacks in America were being used as du and were being duped by the communists. And they weren't going to do anything for black America, but they were lying to them and deceiving them and giving them all kinds of things in order to use them 
to create division and destruction within the American culture. So he left the Communist Party. He is, uh, in fact, there's another book that I have here, the last book, Paul Kingor's book, The Devil and Karl Marx, which just came out just in the last uh, uh, couple of months, I think it came out in early July. And he has a whole chapter on Manning Johnson and quotes not so much from this book as he does from the congressional record because Manning Johnson testified before Congress on several occasions in, I think it was 1952 or 1953. What's interesting is if you read this and if you read what he was saying before Congress, you think this is talking about what is going on today. It is the same story. But what we see is that in, the, in his story, in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, the money that was coming into the United States and the direction was all coming from the Stalin government. It was coming from Moscow, and they were directing everything that was happening in the United States. Well, that's not happening since, uh, in, since what, in 1989, 1990, when Soviet Union broke up. Where's the money coming from today? It's coming from the Chinese communists, otherwise known as the Chicoms, a phrase that a lot of younger people don't recognize, but those of us who went through the Cold War know exactly who the Chicoms were. You remember Korean War, and uh, I remember a guy coming back to talk to our high school class. He'd graduated a couple of years before and had gone to Vietnam, and he talked about the Chicoms that were uh, acting as advisors as well as soldiers in the North Vietnamese Army. And he said, you can always tell them because the Chinese are tall people. I remember one time going into Costco over here and seeing a Chinese couple, and I didn't come up to their armpit. I mean, the lady had to be 6'6", and the guy had to be 6'10". They were huge. And, there's one, and of course, Yao played for the rockets, and he was tall. There's a... a element of the uh, Chinese population that has this, that, that are very, very tall. So anyway, that, that you could spot them, he said, and I've never forgotten what he, what he talked about there. And so uh, we have a liberal media that since, I think since the fifties has discounted the influence and the attempted influence of, of communists. They, they, they reacted to the red scare uh, back in the early fifties. And ever since then, anybody who talks about, the influence of communism, Russian communism, Chinese communism in America is just a conspiracy nut. Uh, but if you look at the evidence, it, it's still going on. And the where's Antifa getting all the money? Where is Black Lives Matter getting all the money? Well, we know that a lot of guilt-ridden American and American corporations gave Black Lives Matter a lot of money. But before that, they got a lot of money from, from the Chinese government. And this is pretty well documented. So Manning Johnson, what he says there is just as applicable today. An older book by Gary North, some of you know his name, Gary North's uh, vocation was as, a, as an economist. He was uh, well respected for his economic views until he predicted certain destruction of Western civilization at Y2K. Y'all remember Y2K. Gary North is known in Christian circles because he's a committed vocal uh, writer of um, uh, uh, as a post millennialist and Christian reconstructionist, and back in the eighties, I exchanged several uh, letters uh, letters with him. He writes with a poison pen. Uh, he is one of the he makes 
he makes Donald Trump look like a, a pansy. Okay, and this is a Christian, so-called Christian theologian, but one of his first books that he wrote when he was working on his Ph.D. in the 60s was on Marxism, and then he revised it in the 80s, and it is a, a, a very good a- analysis uh, of Marxism, a, as he calls it, Marx's religion of revolution, for that's what it is. At the very core of Marxism is the, the only solution is to overthrow everything and to reinstate everything according to his principles uh, of communism. Uh, of course, that has never worked and never will work because we don't live in his world, we live in God's world, and that isn't how God designed everything. And then this recent book by Paul Kingor, and he brings out, and I didn't have, I ran out of time today and I didn't get some of this put in here, but he has a lot, Marx was a poet. A lot of, I didn't know that, and a lot of people are never told that. That was, that was his, one of the first things he ever wrote. He wrote a lot of poetry, and in some of his poetry, it's, it's satanic, it's demonic. He thinks he has taken up the sword of Satan in his philosophy, and that it was just astounding to read the number of ways in which he alludes to Satan and the demonic throughout his poetry and also uh, in his in his writings, so he was definitely I would say demon influenced at the very least. Okay, so let's look a little bit at who Karl Marx was. He's born on the fifth of May in 1818 in Trier, Germany, which, if you look at a map, is in far western Germany, almost on the Belgian border. It was a heavily Roman Catholic city. And uh, there were uh, uh, Lutheran churches there, but it was very, uh, very Roman Catholic. And there is also a, a significant, was a significant Jewish community there uh, as well. He is an ethnic Jew. He was born with a tremendous Jewish family pedigree on his, actually on both sides, uh, both his father and mother's side, there were descendants of noted rabbis and scholars and sages. On his father's side, his father's name was Heinrich Marx. He was a lawyer, and he was born, his birth name was Herschel Halevi Marx. Halevi would indicate that he is a descendant of the, of, uh, the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. He, uh, his father was the son of a rabbi and a Talmudic scholar. He was a descendant of the very famous Rabbi Eliezer Halevi of Mainz, Germany, or Mainz, Germany, which wasn't far from uh, Trier. And uh, Rabbi Eliezer's son was Rabbi Yehuda, uh, Mainz, uh, Yehuda Mintz, who was the head of a Talmudic school in Padua, Italy. On his mother's side, his mother's name was Henrietta Pressbork. She's the daughter of a rabbi as well and the descendant of famous Jewish rabbis and sages. So he's got this scholarly pedigree, brilliant people in his background, but his father has rejected all of that. His father was a true child of the Enlightenment, what the Jews call the Haskalah. 
And he is a, he's an enlightenment thinker. That's what they meant by a liberal at that time, someone who had rejected the traditional authorities of religion and they were uh, uh, living their lives on the basis of, of uh, reason, on the basis of rationalism and empiricism. And so he's a classic liberal. He is an enlightenment thinker. In 1816, so this is two years before... Uh, Marx was born, his father converts to Lutheranism. And why does he do that? Well, Germany at that time was independent states. It's not united. This was part of Prussia, and there was a Prussian decree that prohibited Jews from entering into the higher professional, higher professions, especially the law profession or the uh, medical profession, and remember his father's a lawyer, so he converted to Christianity. It's a true conversion because he really had no interest whatsoever in Judaism. By the 1750s, there are many Jews who have just become so disillusioned and disenchanted with Jewish Orthodox movement because all the services are in Hebrew. Nobody can understand Hebrew anymore. It's all rote. Everybody is just saying the same thing, and there's, there's no real, uh, real learning there unless you're a Talmudic scholar. And then they had their, their own problems. So many people were just lost interest. They didn't care. And in the mid-1700s, you had a man by the name of uh, Moses Mendelssohn who broke with the traditional Orthodox Church, and he's said to be the father of, of Reformed Judaism, which is very, very liberal. They don't believe anything about the Hebrew Scriptures. Basically, you just make it up, but they want to have, have the cultural traditions without the theological traditions. It's interesting that all, almost all of his children converted to Christianity, one of whom was Felix Mendelssohn, who was a well-known composer. So Marx is in that era, in that time, and uh, his, uh, when it, after his father's conversion in 1824, he had his six children baptized into the Lutheran Church, so that would mean that Carl was six years of age when this, when this took place. And by all accounts, it's very interesting, by all accounts, he was a committed, passionate Christian until he was 18 or 19 years of age, and then he just gave it up like that. Now, it was a liberal form of Lutheranism, but the question is that the liberal Lutheranism of that day isn't the liberal Lutheranism of today. And so how much did he understand? And I, I don't know. Paul Kingor states that he that he was a Christian. He doesn't say he was a professing Christian. He said he was a committed Christian. I don't know what Kingor's background is, uh, whether he's Roman Catholic, which is possible, and in which case he doesn't believe in eternal security. But he and many others all make these statements without giving any documentation or ex expanding on it that he was a committed that he was a committed Christian. Now, my friend, you've heard me say this before, my friend John Hintz, who's pastor of Tucson Bible Church, had at one time, he may still have it, but, you know, he had that horrible motorcycle accident about 15 years ago, and he can't remember think where things are anymore uh, from a certain period of time. He does real well the rest of the time, but there are just certain holes in his memory. But he had a paper at one time written by 
a 16-year-old Karl Marx on the doctrine of justification by faith. So I called him up today and I said, was he really talking about his view of justification by faith or was he talking about uh, just writing a paper on Lutheranism's doctrine of justification by faith? He said, that's a good question. I just don't remember. So I don't know. But he has told me before that from what he read, that if that's what Marx believed, he clearly understood justification by faith alone in a, in a very biblically orthodox way. And it's possible, and we believe that it is possible, that a person can trust in Christ as Savior and then reject God and then go apostate. That's what grace is all about. God doesn't have strings attached to the gospel. That if you have to believe me and stick with it or or you're not really saved. That's what's called lordship salvation. That's not the free grace gospel. And and I know that there are Christians who have committed horrible sins of arrogance and uh, and rejected God, rejected a lot about God's word. They may not have had all the horrible, horrible uh, influences that Karl Marx had, but they're just as separated from God and hostile to God and angry at God as, as anybody else. And and there's there's no line where God says, well, you can hate me for so long, and you can reject me for so long, and you can be apostate for so long. But if you if it's too long, well, I'm just going to disinherit you, take you out of the family, and you're gone. So nothing like that. So it's possible that one day when you get to heaven, you're going to see this bearded guy walk along, and um, and you're going to say, well, who's that? And somebody says, well, that's a real trophy of grace. That's all Karl Marx. Of course, he's kind of in the cellar because he didn't get anything at the judgment seat of Christ, but he's here. So we never know. I don't know whether he was or was not, but it's interesting as I read here. All these people make these statements, but then they don't go any further. Who knows? God knows. That's what matters. So Marx attended a Jesuit or former Jesuit high school that had become secularized. Then he went to Bonn University and the University of Berlin, which was very difficult. That was one of the premier universities in in Germany at the time. And he didn't get his doctorate from there, but he uh, he did his study there, and then he got his doctorate from Bonn University. He had no Jewish education whatsoever. He had no desire for it. In fact, he was anti-Semitic. Remember, his father converts two years before he's born. He is virulently anti-Semitic. He despises the Jewish people. And and these people like that, you have a lot of people like that today, they're called self-hating Jews. And on the liberal, secular end of the spectrum, they are uh, anti-Semitic. So he is that way. And uh, he did well academically, but he never was able to get hired by any faculty. So one questions uh, his ability to impress uh, any of his colleagues at that time. He was influenced in a, uh, to a certain degree by the philosophy of Georg Hegel, uh, but he borrows and adapts and changes him, much like he borrows and adapts certain ideas from Christianity and does that. And along with his, with his uh, uh, f- wealthy friend Friedrich Engels, he published the Communist Manifesto in 1848 and the Das Kapital in 1878. He started off as a poet, and he had many Faustian themes. Just to remind you, Johann Faust is a historical figure, but there was a fictional work done where the uh, 
uh, where Faust, who is a businessman, he's very successful, but he's very unhappy with his life. And so he enters into a pact with the devil that in exchange for his soul at the end of his life, uh, the devil would let him have unlimited knowledge and success and worldly pleasures. And this has been a the stuff of operas and movies and film and TV shows and things of that nature. And even uh, Carl's father wrote him a letter, one of the last letters he wrote him because they were they, they had nothing to do with each other for most of Carl's life. And he said, you have made a Faustian deal. And he, he recognized, and, and it's just one of those many things Kinger points out about the about. Uh, the the demonic, that he um, he was born in a very optimistic time in Western civilization following the Enlightenment. It's the beginning of modernism, which really begins right about then. Paul Johnson, in his book on the moderns, begins the modern period with the Battle of Waterloo and the defeat of Napoleon and the peace then that comes uh, at the end of of uh, the Napoleonic Wars, that that's the beginning of really the the 19th century, and it ends at the end of World War One. So that's where he would uh, Johnson uh, puts that at the beginning. It was optimistic. Science can solve all of our problems. So everybody wanted whatever they were saying to be scientists. Everyone from genuine scientists, such as biologists and geologists and medical doctors, to those who were not really scientists, the social scientists, the historians, the philosophers, the psychologists, all claimed that, that disciplines were science, but that it was pseudoscience. And, but the, see, the idea of what makes a science a science is that you predict results, you carry out experiments to see if they produce those results, you adjust if necessary in, or, in refining your uh, hypothesis in order to, uh, to, to see how things actually work. It's testable, it's repeatable, and it's uh, subject to experimentation. But nothing in history is that way. Uh, nothing in sociology is that way. Nothing in psychology is that way. People are just making up these theories as they go along because they hate the Bible. That's the bottom line. That's Romans 1, 18 to 9. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 20, that man is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So when we look at his views from a worldview perspective, as we studied earlier in the series, a worldview is made up, according to my chart here, of four basic components. The bottom one, the fundamental one, is metaphysics. In psycho- uh, philosophical terms, it's ultimate reality. Is there a being, an infinite personal being who is the creator of everything, or is it just matter? Those are the two options, really. Everything either goes back to a personal infinite being, which is the, God, the Judeo-Christian God, the God of the Bible, or everything goes back to just matter. That sometime there's this big bang, and it's just matter and energy, and then somehow by, uh, by pure chance, there's some sort of electrical discharge, discharge on some kind of primordial slime, and it produces a, an organic cell, and over the process of time, uh, you ultimately go uh, from the goo to the zoo to you. And you end up with, you know, darn. So those are the only two options. So 
when you're thinking about Darwin, it's that's it. He's total atheist. He despises God, hates all religion. It's the opium of the masses. He just rejects it. Uh, you develop your view of knowledge. How do we know what's true on the basis of your view of ultimate reality? How do you know truth? How do you know that what you believe is true? And then third, that develops ethics. How do you know it's right? When we hear people today talk a lot about justice, social justice, well, it's just not fair. It's just not just. Well, where do you get your idea of justice or fairness? Justice and fairness are moral, ethical absolutes that only apply to uh, intelligent personal beings, but if we're pure matter, which is uh, pure materialism, which is Marx's theory, he is a, a di- called a dialectical ma- materialist, and I'll explain a little bit about that later, but that he's a pure materialist. And so how can you make people people have personhood if they are just matter, pure matter? And so there's no real basis for ethics if you have rejected a personal righteous God who is the basis of all right and wrong. People say, well, that's not right. Well, where do you get your ideas of right or wrong? Well, I just don't think that's right. Okay, so that's your opinion, but do you have an absolute on which to base that? Because the next person comes along is going to say, no, it's right. What you think is wrong, he'll say is right, and who's right and who's wrong? How do you decide? That's part of the problem we have going on right now in in this selection of Supreme Court justices is that one side of the country says there are no absolutes, therefore not even the Constitution reflects absolutes, and therefore it's a living document. And the other side says, no, it is the absolute law of the land, and it is not to be toyed with, and it must be interpreted in light of the intent of the original writers, just as we interpret the Bible. And so you have this huge, huge chasm between the two. And there's no way to build a bridge across that, because one is pure relativism, and the other is based on pure objectivity and absolutism. So ethics then develops into politics, why we think about certain things in terms of national and individual decisions, and we say, well, I don't like what the president did, it's wrong. Where do you get that value? Well, that value comes from a framework of knowledge. Where do you get your framework of knowledge? Everything goes back to God. Everything in life, from why you brush your teeth to why you eat the way you do, ought to be able to trace it back to God. I mean, if you ask Paul why you brush your teeth, God, he would start with man is created in the image and likeness of God. He made his body from the dirt. He started with the whole theology of the body. That was Paul. Now, as we look at... Go, let me go back to this slide. When we look at metaphysics, a subcategory of that, as I told you, is the creation of man because man is created in the image and likeness of God. So we ask the question, who is man? And man is created in the image and likeness of God, but he's no longer perfect. He was originally perfect, but he's not perfect. It was because of sin. So the Bible identifies man's basic problem as sin. It is a moral problem. It is a spiritual problem. It resulted in his separation from the life of God, and so he is spiritually dead. And the only solution is that he has to be made spiritually alive, and that can only take place if the sin penalty is paid for. And when the sin penalty is paid for, then we are regenerate or we are made alive again, and we have spiritual life, and we are forgiven. So the solution to the problem is God's solution, which is redemption. Now, in Marxism, the root problem is economic. 
It has nothing to do with morality or ethics, but he slips that in there because he's going to say it's, it's economically unfair. Well, Carl, where do you get your idea of fairness and unfairness? So he says that the basic problem is economic, and uh, there's no focus of tethering justice to anything other than an economic system. There's no justification in his writings for why justice matters. In other words, he has no ethical foundation. It's just all about power, really. And so his solution is, from the uh, Communist Manifesto, to purge the human race of all greed and oppression. But see, he's not defining greed and oppression as sin that separates you from an eternal God. Greed and oppression just cause this inequality, he says, and there's some truth to that, but uh, that's because we, fit, we as Christians put it in a larger framework uh, dealing with our, our sin nature. So he looks at the root problem as basically um, this flawed uh, economic system. In his root, in his foundation, related to God, he is militantly anti-God and anti-theism. In the Christian Manifesto, he says that the goal of communism is to abolish eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and all morality instead of constituting them on a new basis. So he wants to overthrow everything, all of the foundations. And it is very ethical... In fact, in Marxism, morality is legislated to the maximum. But where do they get their morality? Whoever has the power. So this is very different from, uh, from Christianity. Christopher Cohn, in his book, Worldview Applied, Chris has done a good job there. He has two chapters dealing with Marxism. One is called the limitations of government, which is very good because what Karl Marx wants to do is to establish a utopia, a perfect environment where greed and sin no longer exist. And he does that simply through what he calls the dialectical process, which he borrowed from Hegel. Uh, but there's no, there's no God overseeing it. It's man pulling himself out of the muck by himself. So Chris comments on this. Communism sets out to free the human condition from the greed that so entangles us and that ultimately facilitates our own enslavement. Communism is most ambitious in its diagnosis of the human condition, greed and oppression. And in its prescription for redeeming the human condition, the abolition of all private property and the dissolution of every societal force promulgated by the existence of capitalism. In communism, morality, albeit it's redefined, is legislated to the utmost. So this is what uh, Marxism does. What communism does is it says there's a problem, and that problem is, is greed and oppression, and that the solution to this is to get rid of all private property. He is going to do that in a couple of different ways. Uh, but what he does is analyze history, and he says that history has gone through these various stages. 
The first is primitive and communal. And so what you, I'm going to go back to this dialectical idea. Dialectic comes from Hegel. Hegel says first you have a situation. That's your thesis, your starting point. Then you'll see the reaction to it. That's the opposite, the antithesis. And then there's going to be some sort of re- resolution where you have um, a synthesis. But that synthesis becomes the new thesis. So it starts off, you have a king, like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, you have a king, and everybody is a, a slave to the king. Remember, that happens really after Joseph, where everybody, during the famine, everybody has to sell everything, all their property, everything to, to the king. And so at the end of that period with Joseph, Pharaoh and the government owns everything. And uh, so you have the, this is the first uh, illustration. You have the king, then you, everybody's a slave. Well, sooner or later, as a king, you have to have people help you, so certain slaves are going to be chosen as your administrators, and then they're going to not want to be slaves anymore. They want to be part of the ruling class, and so that's your your antithesis, and then you're going to reach a resolution where you're going to take the uh, these rulers from the slaves, and you're going to elevate them and give them their freedom, and that becomes the new situation where you have the king, and you have the nobles or aristocracy, and then everybody else, basically peasants and serfs. And so that becomes your your new your new situation, your your synthesis, and then there's going to be an opposite thing where these serfs want their freedom, and so now they, they, there's a clash between them and the ruling class, and so there's going to be a synthesis where the people are given their freedom, and that becomes a new synthesis, and eventually it works its way to the time when you get rid of all of the distinctions between the ruling class or the bourgeoisie, the uh, oppressors, and those who are oppressed or they are the proletariat or the the working classes or the oppressed class, okay? And so that's important to under, understand the, this is essential uh, to Marxism. So these are the stages. You have the primitive and communal, and then it goes to a slave, and then it goes to feudalism, and then capitalist. And then the ultimate goal is a socialist and communist utopic epoch. Now, this this word utopia was coined by Sir Thomas More 500 years ago. He wrote a book, and he called it utopia. Tapas is a Greek word, which means a place. And the Greek word for no is ou, O-U. So he took the U sound from ou, put it as a prefix with topia, and it really means no place. And, and see, some people read his book on utopia, isn't that wonderful? There's this island where everything is perfect and blissful and there's no problems and everything else. He really wrote this as a farce to show that this never happens. There's no such place as perfection on this earth because the problem is endemic to the human condition. We're sinners, and there can be no, no perfection. There's no place that we can go and run away from this and, and, and hide from it. So Marx's con, uh, con, uh, condition is uh, solution is a total destruction of the present systems. Uh, you have to, uh, in their words, in the uh, uh, in a uh, uh, Marxist ma- in the Man- Communist Manifesto is the formation of the proletariat into a class, overthrow of the bourgeois supremacy, conquest of political power by the proletariat, and then everybody comes together and hugs and make uh, makes up. 
The problem with them is that he thinks it's the problem of private property. So he's totally against private property. Now, we study private property, and the right to enjoy the fruit of one's labor and to own things is part of the first divine institution of individual responsibility and labor. God gives man responsibility to labor, to work in the garden before sin. After sin, work, labor becomes laborious and painful in the sweat of your brow. But there's personal responsibility to work and to do things prior to the fall. And that would include owning property. And in the Ten Commandments, the Eighth Commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. And that means that people have to have private property. Uh, you can't steal if there's no private property. And uh, today, uh, what Mar- Marx talked about the fact that uh, practically all private property was uh, actually practically abolished in his time. He said 90% of the population had no property. Only 10% had pro- uh, property. So things changed a little bit. By Occupy Wall Street in 2011, where they say it's the 1%. So only 1% really have property now, so that's what what we, we talk about today. And what do they want? Those who don't have, the have-nots, want to take it from the haves. They think they have some kind of a right to it without having to work for it. And the Apostle Paul said in first in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 that if you don't work, you don't eat, period. Nobody should be lazy. Nobody should wait around. You have to work and you have to. It's not easy. And everybody learns uh, when they're young that they have to work and have responsibility. And if they do well, then they'll have the rewards uh, from you. Uh, they'll have rewards uh, from what they have achieved. Now, Marx's famous line is to each according to his needs, from each according to his ability. So that basically means if people have, then they are going. They need to give it to those who have not. Now, there's an element of truth in that in the Bible, that the Bible talks to individuals, not to government, but to individuals uh, to share that which God has blessed, this, blessed them with, but it's up to their volition with those who uh, may not have to help them. This is the foundation of what we refer to today as charity. But nowhere in the Bible does it say it is the government's responsibility to equalize the fruits of our of our labor, and yet that is that is the goal of of Marxism. The problem, the underlying problem, is that you can guarantee either equal opportunity or equal results, but you can't do both. You give people equal opportunity to succeed, and some will do very well, and some will not. Think about a a classroom in school. The teacher gives the information, the students take notes or whatever, they're given tests. Some will have worked hard and diligently and they will do well. Others were lazy or they were distracted or they didn't care and they don't do quite so well. So those who put forth the effort are rewarded and those who don't, uh, don't get quite the same, same reward. You can either guarantee equal opportunity or equal result. Equal result is when everybody gets a participation prize. Everybody gets the same thing at the end, and it doesn't matter whether you did well, whether you studied, whether you worked hard. It just matters that you showed up and you were breathing, so you get a trophy as well. Now, under that system, there's no incentive for individuals to try to do well. And there have been study after study after study in different, different environments where when people are not given the 
uh, options of, re of enjoying their rewards for their own work, and if those rewards are then shared with everybody else, then what happens is many of the people will, uh, will not work as hard, and uh, the ones who work hard realize that, that they're not going to get the benefits of their hard work, and so uh, they quit. They quit working hard. Uh, one example of this was when the pilgrims first came and they landed in Massachusetts in the first winter. They had a, a communal environment and pretty soon they recognized that there were these, uh, these internal flaws. So how are you going to make it work if you want to guarantee equal results? Well, this requires three attributes of the government in order to secure equal, the equal results. The government has to be omniscient because it has to know all of the facts, everything, in order to guarantee true equal results. Second, it has to be omnipotent. It has to be able to do all the things and to uh, equally distribute all of, the, all of the results. And then it has to be omnipresent in order to make sure that it is all being equally distributed. In order to have a government that will do that, the government must be God. It is claim, and that is essentially what happens in Marxism is the government turns into a God. And that is called totalitarianism when it is not a God and it, it, it's humans. And so this is a complete uh, failure within the, the whole system. It doesn't work unless the state is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. Noted economist Ludwig von Mises dealt with uh, what should have been the death blow to socialism in pointing this out, and that in socialism, rational economic activity is impossible because of the uh, meddling of government, which throws everything into a, an irrational, unpredictable agenda. That was also expressed by uh, Friedrich Hayek in his book, The Road to Serfdom, where he identified it as the problem of knowledge. The government just doesn't have enough knowledge to be able to equally distribute the results. And, and, and unless it does, then you're, you're not going to have an equal distribution. And every time that communism has been applied, whether it's Soviet Russia or China or Cambodia or uh, uh, places in Africa or Cuba or Venezuela, it always falls apart, and the, and the elite, the ruling elite, get richer and more powerful, and everybody else becomes slaves of the state. And that's essentially what, what happens. Um, Marx, Marxism made the claim, Marx made the claim that he had a, it was scientific. He had no evidence of it, uh, the fact that it was scientific. Paul Johnson, in his chapter on him, says, in a deeper sense, he was not really a scholar and not a scientist at all. He was not interested in finding the truth, but in proclaiming it. There was nothing scientific about him. In, all, in fact, in all that matters, he was anti-scientific. Uh, further, he went on to say that uh, because the problem is, uh, uh, for, uh, uh, excuse me, these are my thoughts. Further, because the problem is diagnosed simply as economic, there's no fo focus on, on justice whatsoever. So, in this chart, we have an evaluation and comparison between Christianity and Marxism. Christianity starts with a personal infinite God, 
And Marxism says there's no God. Naturalism is the uh, general worldview, which means matter is eternal. So there's no difference really between a human being and a rock. That's what that means. So if, if you can crush a rock, then why can't you crush a human being? There, there's no basis for any kind of distinction. And Christianity, man, is noble. He's created in the image of God. Even though it's flawed by sin now, it's still noble, and every individual is valuable. But in Marxism, every individual is just an accident. They're another animal. Uh, In Christianity, the problem is sin. Every human being is corrupt, and therefore you're never going to have a perfect government. We're never going to have perfect kings. You're never going to have perfect rulers. You're never going to have perfect judges and justices. There will also always be a measure of injustice. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to strive for the best we can be, but in in reality, we should never fall into the trap uh, of of trying to evaluate our government. You'll hear people say, well, I come to America, and it's just not as as equitable as I thought it would be. Well, that person is comparing it to an absolute of perfection. The reality is when you compare what we have in the United States with every other country and every other system in the history of man, we are head and shoulders superior to every other nation, every other country in the history of man. Does that mean we've solved the problem? No. I think it was Winston Churchill who once said, capitalism is is a horrible system, but it's better than everything else. And that's what we should be where the comparison is, not with perfection because we'll never have perfection in this life. Uh, the solution to the problem of man in Christianity is the, provided by the redemption of Christ, and therefore we can change and we can change things and we can understand uh, righteousness and justice. In Marxism, the only solution comes through this process of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And in Marxism, the only meaning and value a person gets is that they know they were part of this process. They contributed to the overthrow of the bourgeois supremacy in their role in that thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So that's the only way they can come up with meaning and uh, purpose. Marx said that uh, a being only owes his existence to himself, totally denies and rejects God. Now let's look at Marxism in light of the divine institutions. A new book I, re- I recently have read, skimmed parts of it, and looked at on this was Glenn Sunshine's book, Why You Think the Way You Do, the Story of Western Worldviews from Rome to Home. And it looks like he's done a good job here, good basic book on worldviews, if you haven't read anything on worldviews. And he says, ethics were based on what promoted the interest of the proletariat, that's the oppressed class, and hastened the revolution. Meaning and purpose were derived from working to hasten the revolution. See, that's how you get meaning, just because you work to bring about the revolution. So people who are influenced by Marxism, they're going to get meaning in life by participating in the riots put on by, by Antifa and Black Lives Matter, etc. That's the only way they get meaning in life, because they've rejected Christianity. He says Marx was an economic determinist. Everything about human life was built around economic classes, 
and the implications of the movement of history toward his uh, utopia. So that's how you get meaning, and history is just is to produce in that particular area. Now, as we look at this, Marxism has developed into some different areas, and I don't have time to develop this all tonight, but I want to bring this out as one of the ways in which it's manifested itself in uh, since the 60s is in what is called liberation theology. Liberation theology is a theology based on a reinterpretation of Scripture that the role of Christians in the church is to free people from being in the oppressed class. So it's all about solving problems with the poor. All the passages they use, they take out of, uh, out of context. Ron Blue, who was a missions professor at Dallas Seminary, a sharp guy, wrote an article on liberation theology, spent uh, his early career as a missionary in uh, Central America, said that liberationists propose to free man from all that enslaves him socially, economically, and politically. What did he leave out? Spiritually. doesn't do anything for him spiritually. It's just to free him, his enslavement socially, economic, and politically through peaceful protest or, if necessary, through revolutionary violence. While the social conditions that prompted the birth of liberation theology can be verified, the liberationist solutions need to be challenged. So liberation theology comes out of the late 60s, and then it's adapted to the black situation in America and becomes black liberation theology. It's applied to the Arabs in the West Bank, and so they become that becomes Palestinian liberation theology and also various Asian liberation theologies. Remember Obama's pastor, Jeremiah Wright? He was one of the foremost pastors who influenced, taught, and preached liberation theology, black liberation theology. And one of his most, uh, one of his greatest disciples was Barack Obama. Obama was a Marxist to the core. He kept it hidden, which is what they're taught to do. In the um, uh, black civil rights movement, there's a shift away from the thinking of Martin Luther King, who, who, who was somewhat biblical in some ways. And he honored the Jewish people, and in Black Lives Matter, they aligned themselves uh, with the Palestinians. Now, why do they do that? Because in liberation theology, you have to free the oppressed. That's who you identify with. So blacks in America are the oppressed class, and the Palestinians are the oppressed class. Then the blacks in America have to support the other oppressed classes. That is not biblical. That is anti uh, anti-biblical, and it is opposed to uh, biblical Christianity, which emphasizes the individual and not uh, not the class. So back to just talking about Marxism. Marxism, meaning and purpose, are not derived from a person being created in the image and likeness of God, but being called to serve God. And so he is uh, to carry that out. Now, um, in the uh, Communist Manifesto, Marx writes that the middle class owner of property must be swept out of the way and made impossible. So that's how you reach utopias. You get rid of the middle class and you destroy them violently if possible. Marxism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and morality instead of constituting them on a new basis. Uh, the, according to the Communist Manifesto, 
the communist revolution is the most radical rupture with traditional property relations. No wonder that its development involves the most radical rupture with traditional ideas. So um, what we have to do, they say, is to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class, and that means you put everybody into a state-sponsored school. You take it out of the family. So it is anti-family. Remember, the second divine institution is marriage, the third is family, and it's within the context of the family that the children are educated. And so uh, they they're develop women. It's anti-marriage because women are to be developed into a separate class. That's why even though ma- women make up the majority in the United States over men, they are a minority because they are an oppressed class in the eyes of Marx because they are, uh, to su- in, because of the influence of Judeo-Christianity, they're supposed to submit to their husbands. So in Marx's view, uh, there should be an openly legalized community of women doing away with women. In his view, they were just being used as mere instruments of production. That is, they were making babies for the, to go to work for the next generation. And the... Um, uh, uh, Communist Manifesto, there are ten characteristics of an ideal society, the abolition of land for public pers- purposes, a heavy uh, progressive or graduated income tax, the abolition of the right of inheritance. We always talk about inheritance taxes. That's part of, this is all the influence of Marxism on the government we have today. The confiscation of property of immigrants and rebels, Uh, centralization of credit via national bank, centralization of communication and transport, factories are controlled and regulated by the state, Uh, equal liability of all to labor, Uh, combination of agriculture and manufacture to the end, the town and country no more uh, shouldn't be distinct anymore, and free education for all children in public schools. Their agenda was to influence through the church, Marx said, nothing is easier than to give Christian asceticism a socialist tinge. He's talking primarily about Roman Catholicism. He said, has not Christianity declaimed against private property, against marriage, against the states? If you go into a monastery, you give up your property, take a vow of poverty, and you are a celibate. So the church is, uh, the Catholic church has already gone this way. He says, has it not preached that in place of these, charity and poverty, celibacy and mortification of the flesh, monastic life and mother church, socialism is but the holy water with which the priest consecrates the heart burnings of the aristocrat. So he wants to infiltrate the church. That's the weak underbelly of Western capitalist civilization. Now, when we get to Manson Johnson's book, he comments... Uh, regarding the agenda of the American Communist Party, said, in the work among the Negroes, special attention should be paid to the role, sorry for the typos, role played by the churches and preachers who are, I've got a new keyboard, it drives me nuts, Um, played by the churches and preachers who are acting on behalf of American imperialism. Uh, The party must conduct a continuous and carefully worked out campaign among the Negro masses sharpened primarily against the preachers and the churchmen who are the agents and oppressors of the Negro class. Their agenda was to create Marxist cells in, this is in the 20s and 30s, to create Marxist cells in all of the seminaries and in the Bible colleges and the universities and in every church. That has come, The work that was laid then has come to fruition in many ways today. And uh, he quotes from, 
there, uh, the, the, he, he describes this, the new Marxist emphasis in sermons was Jesus the carpenter is a worker like the communists. He was against the money changers, the cap, who were the capitalists, the exploiters of that day. This is why he drove them from the temple. The communists are the modern-day fighters against the capitalists or money changers. If Jesus were living today, he would be persecuted like the communists who seek to do good for the common people. So it's a complete perversion of what the Scripture teaches. Now, Black Lives Matter is a stepchild of this movement. In Marxism, the the three founders all are trained Marxist leaders. That means that they've embedded Marxism. Now, they've changed. When I taught this back in July, I took you to the website. I showed you the website where they have their What We Believe statement about how they were completely opposed to the uh, nuclear family. They're completely opposed to heteronormative marriage. They've taken all that down now. But that's still their view. Uh, they've adopted uh, cultural Marxism views. They've adopted these class views. It's interesting when we are when pe- the human race is judged in the in the at the great white throne, and at the um, at the bema seat of Christ, we are not judged by classes. We're judged as individuals for the choices we make as individuals, not as classes. But in Marxism, it's all about the group. It's about your identity. It's not about the individual. Uh, Black Lives Matter has adopted a social justice ethic, which is not based on any absolute. And so they have rejected all of the six divine institutions. They're aligned with the Palestinians against Israel. They reject uh, personal responsibility for class warfare. They reject marriage, uh, homo, uh, heteronormative marriage. They reject the his, historical uh, family and they reject nations, and they're, and they're globalists. So they want to overthrow the government. So they're against all the divine institutions. A hundred years of communism produced uh, over a hundred million dead, according to the Wall Street Journal article in 2017. Communism, a hundred years killing the people to save the people. This is the fruit of, of Karl Marx. And so... That brings us to an end of this study. We have to recognize, as all of my former Ukrainian students who have moved to the U.S. have observed, we are already a socialist country. We just don't, our eyes aren't well tuned to what socialism is, or we would be awake, awakened to that. But these are young people who grew up in communism, who grew up in socialism, and when they come here, they are just appalled at how we have accepted so much socialism. In, in this form of socialism, the government solves our problems for it. We don't solve them ourselves. And we expect the, prob- the government to solve our health problem. The government is to get out of the way so we can work hard and solve our health problems and pay for our uh, medical care, and they need to uh, quit being part of the problem. Uh, th- this applies to everything acro- across the board. The government is only to protect our constitutional rights so that we have the freedom to be successful to achieve and solve all these other problems in our life. And uh, instead, we are giving up our personal responsibility to be ruled by the government. And that is the road to the complete loss 
of freedom. So this concludes our study, and next week we'll come back and return to our study on Thursday night in Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to have our eyes open perhaps to uh, what is going on around us and the issues involved in a Marxist worldview as opposed to a Christian worldview. We pray for our government. We pray for our president. We pray for all those in leadership from the city all the way up to the national government that you might open their eyes to the evil things that many in government wish to uh, bring about and all of which will destroy this nation. And we pray that we might continue uh, with leaders who will uphold the Constitution. It will take a long time to change this and reverse course, but we can do it uh, by your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.